You're listening to the Rent Roll Radio Show with Sterling Chapman. Hey, Rent Roll Radio listeners. As always, I'm your host, Sterling Chapman. Today, we are joined by Adam Stern. Adam is the CEO of Strata SFR. It is a build for rent and single family rental portfolio brokerage. Did I get that right, Adam? I know it's a mouthful. I want you to say it three times really fast, but yeah, you got it right on the first time. <laughs> awesome. Adam, thank you so much for joining us today. I really Thanks look for forward me. to uh, chatting with you. And sure. um, let's kick it off, man. Tell tell the tell the, the listeners what you do and how you're connected to real estate. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've been in the institutional SFR, single family real estate industry for the last 10 years. I, I launched a company way back when, 2010, with a partner called Own America. That was a website where people can essentially bring their SFR portfolio spreadsheet, upload it to a website, get it into the valuation and instant analysis. I ended up selling that business in 2018 to Renner's Warehouse, phenomenal property management company. And uh, that platform allowed me to become a very specialized kind of broker in the SFR industry, where I, I was known for doing single family rental portfolio brokerage. Uh, so I started Strata back in 2020 because all my clients were like, hey, Adam, keep sending us portfolios, but we really like to do this new thing called Build for Rent. And I know a whole lot about it back in 2020 and before, but I, I realized really swiftly that you know new construction rental property communities wasn't really a very hard concept to understand, or for me, at least as a professional real estate entrepreneur and a professional real estate businessman, it wasn't that hard to get my head around the idea that there are builders out there that would like to or could sell their entire communities to hedge funds who will create rental properties out of them. So when I started Strata, I was doing really two things. I was doing SFR portfolio brokerage, which I, I had a lot of experience in. And also I started doing build for rents, putting together build for rent deals and then delivering them to you know my institutional clients. Awesome. So- and that's and that's and that's a mouthful right there. Yeah. That's yeah. A <laughs> It sounds like you have your 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 hands in a bunch of different uh, cookie jars. I, I I do have some specific questions about um, the single family rentals going to the institutional investors. We, you kind of hear about that on the on the fridges, yep. and uh, and I just want to know more about it. What what? How many properties do you see these institutions buying? When did you start seeing them buy? What kind of properties are they buying? What impacts do you think that has on the actual market? I read an article recently that suggested that the institutional investors investing in these these single family houses was actually driving driving up the prices. Um, I, I I couldn't really see enough activity volume to really justify that claim. So I'm just curious for somebody who's boots on the ground and, and got a front row seat to that entire ordeal. Um, mm-hmm. Can you, can you kind of elaborate on, on, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm assuming that's a fairly new, newer phenomenon. I wouldn't call it new. It, it, it started back in 2010 and uh, I'm happy to kind of expouse on all the above, but it's really important to understand, like to understand the institutional SFR industry and, and the segment, like where it all started from and where it is today sure. and why. Um, and just for your listeners, you don't really have a br- the breadth of history on it. It all started like in 2008, 2009, after the housing meltdown, when Wall Street firms started raising money to buy foreclosures and then turn them into rental properties. It was more or less seen as a trade back in 2007. There was a bunch of distress in the market, a bunch of Wall Street money wanted to or thought it was a really good time to buy distressed assets in the US housing market. Everyone on the capital side thought the U.S. housing market was a good and safe bet, and it turned out to be right. So what ended up happening was from 2008 to like 2012 and 13, 
lots of firms that raise institutional capital. And when I say institutional capital, I mean firms like sovereign wealth funds and private equity funds and pension funds. They give their monies to operators who go out there and purchase assets, renovate them, put tenants in them and manage them. And that started happening on a larger and larger scale all throughout the 2010s. So, you know, it ended up being, I think, I forget what the numbers are. Like in 2010, like 94% of single family rentals were owned by people that own one, right? And then there were sure. like five or 6% that owned between like two and X number. And institutional ownership of single family rentals was like less than 1%. Well, today, uh, institutional ownership of SFR, I think it's standing about five or 6%. And wow. it's, it's a huge driver of most markets pricing in a certain price point. Because if you think about what happened, you know, at first it was all about foreclosures and doing a trade. Then it was all about buying MLS listed properties and putting tenants in them for a long-term operationally intensive business. During the time when people figured out that it was really a business and not a trade, they weren't gonna be buying and then selling the assets. They started to create property management infrastructure and really, really broad and wide reaching infrastructure to do acquisitions, renovations, and then management. Uh, and when that infrastructure got built out all throughout the mid 2010s, more and more capital just started piling in because now they had a place to get exposure to the US housing market and it had proven to be a really safe, consistent kind of investment that would throw off a very consistent return. Um, so one of your questions was, is it good for the housing market? Is it good for retail home buyers? Is it good for like retail investors? I mean, it depends on what seat you're sitting in. If you're a first-time home buyer buying between like a $150,000 home and a $350,000 home, it is extremely bad for you to compete with the likes of the institutional capital that's out there. Because they like they buy houses after looking at them for an hour and they don't need to step foot inside until it's under contract. So it makes it, you know, even though it's a relatively small part of the overall market in most economy, you know, in most five, markets. Five or six percent is enough to move the needle. It's a lot. It's a lot of houses. And, and if you look at it as a percentage of like the actual product in a certain price range, it's much higher than that. So like sure. the amount of these homes that are actually bought by institutions that are like in a certain price range, because that's the price range they need to be in to achieve a certain cap rate. It's, it's a very, very tough for a first time home buyer to compete with institutions who act very swiftly and they pay all cash and they close in 30 days. So what are they, um, what are, what specifically are they looking for? So the things that the institutions are looking for are very much in line with everything that the home buyer or more particularly the home renter is looking for. So when you're a home buyer, and this goes for home renters too. You look for proximity to amenities. You want to be close by a grocery store. You want to be close to a restaurant or retail shops. You want to be in a good school district. You want to have your kids go to a safe school and something that has a school that's at rates high on the, on the safety and school scores rating. Uh, you want to be in an area with low crime. You want to have a house that has nice amenities or uh, at least nice outfits. Everything that you would want as a home buyer or home renter I should say everything you want as a home buyer, you'll probably want as a home renter. And these firms are really good at understanding how to acquire those assets or build them now and then deliver that rental housing to an ever-expanding market of, of home renters. So like, I don't want to make it seem like there are big, bad institutions doing all this, all these things to make it harder for retail home buyers. Uh, it, that's true enough, I think. But on the other side of the coin, 
the availability of quality rental housing for people who don't want to buy or can't buy is more prevalent now than ever. It's, it's as good a time as any to want to be a renter because you either don't want to settle down in a place or because your job is now not required for you to actually live in a place and you get to work remotely or because you want to live in a better area that you could afford and you could pay a higher rent and you could have a mortgage or don't have the down payment. So there's a very, very distinct like benefit to all the things that institutions are doing, you know, and there's good and there's bad, right? So, so good schools and low crime, I guess that's why I'm not bumping into the hedge funds down here in South Louisiana. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you guys in South Louisiana, the, the places where you invest, well, let me ask you this. Do you invest in areas with high crime, bad schools and like, you know, no. on the outskirts of town? No, I mean, I always say, you know, you can make money anywhere. You can. And, and, yep. and, and though, you know, a lot of what I spend my time and energy when it comes to studying market is like around syndication. And we look at like, you know, population density, population trends, you know, mm-hmm. job diversification, crime rate, you, you know, job, uh, that kind of job growth and that kind of thing. And like it, it looks bad in, in my area where I live in, in Baton Rouge and the surrounding in new Orleans and stuff like all those key metrics are going in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of people here making money. Yeah, um, there is. And, and I'll give you an example. So, so my core business is brokering, you know, SFR portfolios and built friend projects. I get portfolios all the time that are in what we call C areas that have higher crime and that have, you know, schools that rate lower in the school scores and that are more economically challenged. And those homes come at a lower price and they come at a lower rent, but the returns people can higher, yeah. uh, can, can get are much higher. And there's buyers for that product out there. So like there's always buyers for investments based upon two things, based on price and return, obviously, but also based on their ability to manage those assets effectively. And you know that means if I'm used to managing rentals that have you know, $2,000 a month and higher in an area that generally my renter base are like white collar professionals with six figure jobs. I'll have a very specific experience managing those kind of tenants as opposed to managing an area where they average rent $600. And like, they're generally people that are blue collar or they're in the service professions and they're living paycheck to paycheck. There's a need for both kinds of housing, just like there is a prevalence of investors for both kinds of assets it's just a matter of who wants to own and manage those and what kind of return they'll accept at the end of the day. That's the way I look at it. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes, I mean, when it comes to the institutions though, the investors in the institution, they're not getting anywhere near the asset. So there there's built in, I, I would assume there's, you know, there's built in property management systems. There's, there's built in infrastructure that takes it all there. Um, my question is at the end of the day, do they still get the higher returns or does the higher turnover and the rougher on the buildings and that kind of thing, do, does that not diminish the return at the end of the day? Or are you still finding those C classes ultimately spit out a higher return at the end of the day than the, the A classes? Yes. So the answer is it entirely depends on the operator. What I saw since 2010 are plenty of operators who weren't operators at all that raise money, you know, from from private equity or institutional investors that said, I'm going to get a return of this, you know, a very high return for this kind of asset. And they explain the asset. We're going to buy in good neighborhoods, good schools, median home prices, yada, yada, yada. And we're going to get this return. And what they realized was when they bought this asset, 
at you know this asset, they got this return. And when they bought a lower quality asset, they got a higher return. The issue with buying the lower quality asset is very often they couldn't figure out the operational challenges of people paying late rent, people getting evicted, people not paying rent at all, you know, issues that pop up with people in a lower rent band. So I saw more operators fail at buying lower quality assets where they bought lower quality assets and they ended up getting the same return as they would if they bought higher quality assets. And that was a pretty common story when I kind of saw things happening throughout the early 2010s. And then what ended up happening is because there's more information and there's better systems now in the SFR industry than really ever before, people that are raising money can make a more informed decision on the asset type that they want to invest in. And they got more resources and more history at their disposal to figure out how to do it well. So I see less and less operators like shooting for a high return by buying a really low quality asset. I see people that have that strategy. They generally understand pretty well that, yes, they got to figure out a certain amount of vacancy, a certain amount of evictions, a certain lack of rent growth if they're expecting rent growth. All these metrics by which, by which SFR firms measure their success or failure, um, the smart money is finding good operators that understand the asset class well enough to invest in the right areas and the right kinds of assets to get that consummate return. And it's only the operators that are actually knowledgeable in how to manage various kinds of assets that are delivering those kinds of returns and are continually raising more and more institutional capital. Absolutely. So can you, um, I, I want to compare and contrast multifamily to the single family portfolios. Mm-hmm. One thing now, I, we always hear the other side of the coin, right? I run in a lot of syndication circles and we're all, and everybody's always selling multifamily. And one of the things that drives me crazy that a lot of people will say is, oh, no, 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 a single a multifamily is better because you got more doors and you spread out your risk. And, you know, single family house is either 100% vacant or 100% full. I'm like, yeah, but if you have 50 of them, it's the same thing. As, yeah. So that, that seems like a really stupid yeah. argument that could be torn apart really easily. And it, it just, it, it irks me every time I hear it. So what are some, what are some compare and contrasting that you've heard the institutions do when they're looking at the two different asset classes? So um, it, it's almost like comparing indie cars to stock cars. Like you can't really compare the two because indie car drivers and indie car race teams are really good at racing indie cars and they wouldn't even think about driving a stock car and vice versa. So the, the reason why I draw the comparison is, for individual investors, like, like me, for example, I might look at buying a single family rental as being like, all right, I could spend X number of dollars and this is either 100% occupied or 100% vacant. And unless I buy four or five or six or seven or 10 of them, I'm not going to get the same kind of safety and diversity of units as I would with a multifamily, right? Um, but there's a bunch of things that I get with a single family that I don't get with a multifamily. For example, if I have a fire in my house, every one of my units doesn't burn down, right? Another example is the appreciation of my single family asset. It's going to go in lockstep with the overall housing market as opposed to my multifamily asset, which the ret- the price is basically based on a return, right? So if I wanted to gain exposure to the US housing market and appreciation, I'd like the single family asset. If I wanted to lay all my chips on the shoulders of me being an operational genius to increase rents over time, I very well might gear toward uh, uh, I might veer toward the multifamily asset. Um, I think that argument holds water for like individual investors that might go either or. Like I might just as well buy a multifamily building in an area that I like or a single family, you know, property in a, in a very same area. 
and I might get better cash flow with the multifamily, and but it'll be a lot harder to manage. And it's you know a professionally, it's really more of a professional asset to manage as an investment, as opposed to a single family house, which is like a piece of cake. You you own one single family house, you're not going to screw it up. You know, you keep your tenants happy, keep your paint, your walls painted, your carpet clean. It's not that complicated, as opposed to a multifamily where there's a lot of moving parts and a lot can go wrong. Um, so I don't. On the institutional realm, there's money that's raised specifically for single-family rentals, and they do it very, very well. People are doing this business do it very well. They know how to identify assets to acquire. They know how to close on them and transact. They know how to renovate them. They know how to manage them. And there's a whole other swath of capital buying multifamily. What's happening right now, it's funny, you have more and more multifamily investors going in and doing build-for-rent projects, which are essentially single-site communities of either townhomes or single-family detached homes to hold as rentals because they look and smell and feel a lot like apartment complexes um, yep. with a few key differences being that they're single-family detached homes that have a retail exit versus a multifamily, which only has a, a commercial application exit, right? So, so that's that's a perfect transition. I want to switch gears to the build for rent. Um, when you say it has a retail exit, if you build to rent and your entire community is, is built to rent, um, are people really buying these to, to live in them, like to own them individually or, or kind of what's the. Well, one of the exit strategies when you buy a bill for rent, and I'll give you an example what we're doing run right now in a place called fountain. Inn, and it was a, it's an institutional buyer buying 150 homes or about, I think uh, there are about 50 townhomes and hundred single family detached homes. When they stabilize meaning when they rent it out and that community has an operating history, they're going to be able to sell it very much as you would sell an apartment building by saying, Hey, here's our occupancy history. Here's our collection history. Here's the cap rate that we're at. You know, here's the cap rate at our asking price. It's, it, it functions in every way, shape and form like an apartment building, except for the fact that like if the commercial apartment space in that market takes a dump and you want to sell assets to either exit your investment or maybe you need to sell assets to pay a tax bill off. Or if you're, now if you're a private investor, your kids go to college, you want to sell a couple of assets off and you want to, and, and you want to pay for a bill. Institutional investors think about it like, if worse comes to worse, you could just sell each individual home to a home buyer. Sure. And that's a, and that's a, it's a long and complicated exit. It would take a long time and you might not maximize your value. But at the end of the day, it's U.S. housing. Who the hell doesn't sure. want U.S. housing? Right. <laughs> you know? There's always going to be buyers for a US, good quality housing in markets where there's demand, um, as opposed to like, at a car, like an apartment complex where if an area, like you're either selling it to an investor that thinks it's a really good time to buy when you think it's a good time to sell, which that's the, the weird dichotomy about commercial. When you're ready to sell, either you got to sell to a buyer who thinks it's a good time to buy, or you got to sell at such a discount that it makes the buyer's job that almost you know, a no brainer to buy your property as opposed to single family, which is you don't necessarily have to think it's, you don't have to find a buyer that thinks it's a good time to buy when you think it's a good time to sell. You just got to look at the housing chart. You know, if it keeps going up and the housing prices are going up and demand is strong, then it's always going to be a good time to sell. And you can have your choice about when you exit. Can you run over what type of, what kind of price point these houses are at? What kind of rent rent rate they're at as yeah. well. I'm yeah. just trying to figure out what 
where in the market we're sitting with these building Yeah, so, so generally, um, like built for rent, for example, new construction housing in the Southeast and markets like Raleigh and Charlotte and Greensville, South Carolina, Orlando, Jacksonville, you know, Tampa, these are core markets. And, and generally what we're seeing are on the low end, housing units going for maybe a tad under $200,000, uh, all the way up to normally about $400,000. And the sweet spot is really like, you know, 275 to like 295. That's really the sweet spot. And like that's the how much rate, the, that's how much the investors are buying them for. That's how much does it cost to build? Or I'm just from, from what perspective are we talking about how much the houses are? I'm talking about the all in cost for a unit, right? So okay. if a unit costs, let's do the calculation. If the unit costs, let's say $290,000 and $290,000 and you want to, uh, you want to get a, let's call it uh, a 9% gross yield, which is basically the gross income that the property throws off. You're talking about, um, well, we're going to cut this part out. I'm bad at math. Hold on for one second. <laughs> um, let me see here. So let's, let's do it this way. If you're looking to buy a house at $290,000 and that home rents out for roughly $1,700 a month times 12, is $20,400 a year in gross annual income. Let's say you have a 65% NOI, net operating income, 35% expense load. You multiply that by 65%, that's $13,260. You divide that by average price, of call it like two ninety. Mm-hmm. It's a 4.5% cap rate. That's like for the lowest, lowest end of what people are buying in the bill front uh, segment right now. So to buy a $200,000 house, you're really talking about rents that need to be in the $1,800 to $1,900 range and, and above. So like when institutions buy, they look at return. And the way I measure return is via gross yields and cap rate. So to me, gross yield is simply gross annual income divided by purchase price. And cap rate is your income after expenses divided by purchase price. So right now institutions for like finished product where they buy a finished home, they're, they're buying that home for anywhere between like a 7.5% gross yield, which washes out to be like 4.5% cap rate or net yields and like, you know, toward the higher end, call it a 9.5% gross yield and a 5.5, 6% net yields. Right. So these are all terms where if you were in the SFR industry and you were actually developing sure. built front product, you would need to know these terms. You would need to know how to actually figure out these numbers because when you're building products, you got to figure out what your exit is right away. You know, that, that informs how much you pay for your land, how much you develop your land for, how much you have to pay your builder to build homes. It all depends on how much you can sell for at the end of the day, right? And what cap rate it throws off. Are you typically selling these build to rents in these portfolio settings or, or kind of individually? So I do two things. I sell SFR portfolios, which means my average, like my average portfolio size is like 30 properties. 30 properties are roughly $200,000 a piece. That's my average portfolio. And my average built for rent project is like 125 units with an average price of like $270,000, right? Um, I'm usually either doing, I'm putting together a bill for end projects, which there's a lot to it. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Sure. Or I'm finding a portfolio of rentals and then I'm just packaging and pricing it and then marketing it to institutional buyers. Awesome. Well, real quick, let's switch gears because I know you'd mentioned uh, at the beginning, there's, you have uh, three different areas that you're focused in. Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the website, the social media sites you're developing? Yeah, yes. Yeah. So, so I 
I'm a broker and I live in this weird space of the real estate market called the off market, right? So in real estate- As we all do. <laughs> right, well, everyone, you know, a lot of your audience does probably too. So in real estate, there's on market and there's off market. On market means all you need to do is be able to find the marketplace and everything you need to know to buy a house or a property or a piece of real estate is readily available on the marketplace, all publicly available. In the off market, I have to know you and you have to know me. And when we know each other, then I get to see your opportunities and you get to understand me as a buyer. And you get to see my opportunities and I get to understand you as a buyer. So the, the website's called listhive.com. Our trademark term is the real estate social network. And basically what it is, it's a social network where you can create a free account and create a homepage. And on your homepage, you can create opportunities and you can create buy criteria. And when you connect with other people on the platform, you get to see their opportunities and they get to see your buy criteria and vice versa. So the idea being the more people you connect with in the off market, the more opportunities you'll see and the more buyers you'll come in contact with. And you can grow your network in the off market through this platform that we're calling List Hive. Awesome. Definitely looking forward to, to checking that out. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to check it out and see uh, it's your first commercial, we just posted it. Uh, www.listhive, listhive.com. Awesome. So last, last segment of our show is the radio round. I just want to ask you three quick questions to help our listeners get to know you a little bit better. The first one is what's your favorite book? Uh, my favorite book, man, I got so many. Um, the one that I just got done reading is uh, 10 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. It's 12 Rules. 12, 12 Rules for Life, 12 Jordan rules. Peterson. 12 Rules, yeah. yeah. 12 Rules for Life, Jordan Peterson. Um, one before that is a company, uh, is a book called Think Bigger. And every guys, or I'm sorry, I keep getting, I keep getting the, the names wrong. So I'll start that over so you can actually erase that. <laughs> edit it down. Two books I really like is, uh, one is Jordan Peterson, 12 Rules for Life. And another one's called uh, Play Bigger. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So what's your favorite quote? Um, my favorite quote is, any fool can make things larger, louder, and more explosive. It takes a touch of genius to move in the other direction. Who is that? That's an Albert Einstein quote. That's awesome. That's I like that quote. That. You know, yeah, I, I never heard that one. Um, and it's not very often that I hear a quote on here that I hadn't heard already. So sure. I'm, I'm going to write that down. Nice. Um, <laughs> and what's your favorite thing to do outside of work? I got four boys. I, I like hanging out with them, playing sports. Drinking, drinking beers on my boat while they, uh, while they uh, play on the, on the floating mat. That's like my favorite thing to do in the world. Man, that's awesome. I got two boys. My, my favorite thing to do is working on getting the uh, next two. Well, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably one of the so, favorite activities besides those I mentioned, right? <laughs> so um, how can our listeners find out more about you, uh, find out more about your websites, uh, learn, you know, how can they connect with you? Yeah, uh, stratasfr.com is always a really easy way. We have a YouTube station, uh, stratasfr YouTube. We've got a LinkedIn page. We've got an Instagram. So if you type in stratasfr on any one of those platforms, you'll get to learn about us. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining, Adam. I'm, I'm glad we were finally able to connect and uh, definitely look forward to keeping up with you. Likewise, Joey. I appreciate the time. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks for tuning in to the Rent Roll Radio Show brought to you by Crestworth Capital. We hope you enjoyed the show, and if you did, please hit the subscribe button and leave us a rating and review. 
You can also visit us at CrestworthCapital.com or RentRollRadio.com or follow us on Facebook at RentRollRadio or at CrestworthCapital. If you would like to reach us, feel free to shoot us an email at info at RentRollRadio.com or sterling at CrestworthCapital.com. We hope you come back next week to join us on some more of our journey. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing.